The Old Testament reading for today is Exodus 20. We'll, look, we'll read verses 1 through 21. The sermon will only um, focus upon verses 1 and 2, but I think we need the entire context here. So Exodus 20, verses 1 through 21, and then Romans 13, verses 8 through 14 will be the New Testament reading. So here now the reading of God's most holy word. Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates." For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Let us go now to the New Testament, Romans 13, and read verses 8 through 14. Romans 13, verse 8, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Rome, says... Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies or in drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. 
You know, most Christians are very familiar with the Ten Commandments, or at least they should be. And I think it is safe to say that Christians are much more familiar with the Ten Commandments than with the other laws that the Lord gave to Israel through Moses after He redeemed them from Egyptian bondage. There's good reason for this, that the Ten Commandments are much more familiar to us because Christians and many others have rightly recognized that they contain a summary of the moral law of God. And when we speak of the moral law, we are speaking of those moral principles which apply to all people in all times and all places. The moral law comes from God. It reflects His holy nature. We confess that it was written on Adam's heart at the time of creation, that it is present even still in the heart of man after the fall, though it is constantly distorted and suppressed by sinful men. And at regeneration, it is this law, the moral law of God, which is written anew and afresh upon the heart of man, so that those in Christ love God's law and desire to keep it by the grace of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's no one passage of Scripture that we can turn to where all of this is neatly summarized for us, but when we pay careful attention to the way in which the Scriptures speak of God's law from Genesis to Revelation, we see that it is true. When God created man, He made him a moral creature. Adam knew the difference between right and wrong, good and evil, for this moral law was on his heart. And man still has this capacity after the fall. Man has a conscience, though it is now perverse and often seared. And when God saves a man, when God draws a man to himself through faith in Jesus Christ, he gives him a new heart. He removes the heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. And there the moral law is freshly written, as it were, so that the man does begin to hate that which is evil and love what is good. It will be by this law, the moral law, which is for all people, that all will be judged on the last day, if not in Christ. As I've said, there is no one text of Scripture that says all of this, but this, this section of the book of Exodus that we are now in, along with, I would say, Jeremiah 31, and the first seven chapters of Paul's letter to the Romans, these are especially important passages that help us to understand um, that the Ten Commandments are in fact, or do contain, rather, a summary of God's moral law. Uh, that's what I'm observing here. Christians and others have rightly observed that the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words, perhaps is what we should call them, which God gave to Israel, do in fact contain a summary of God's moral law. And as you know, these Ten Commandments can be summarized by two commandments. This is what Jesus taught when He was asked to identify the most important law in the Law of Moses. He quoted from Deuteronomy 6.5, which says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And then He cited Leviticus 19.18, which says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so the whole law, the whole moral law of God uh, that He gave to Israel through Moses comes down to these two commandments we're to love God with everything that we are, and we're to love our neighbor just as we love ourselves. And as I've said, these two commandments summarize the ten. The first four commandments of the ten have to do with our love for God. They teach us about how He is to be honored, how He is to be worshipped. And the last six of the ten have to do with our love for neighbor. They teach us about how we are to honor our fellow man. Furthermore, these two commandments and the ten commandments, which they summarize, function 
as the moral foundation or core of the other 601 commandments that are found in the Law of Moses. Uh, traditionally, the, the Jewish people have recognized that there are 613 laws found within uh, the, the Law of Moses. And so I've told you about 10, and then I've said these two summarize the 10. So uh, I am saying that these, these moral laws here function as the foundation or the core of the other 601 commandments that are found in the Law of Moses. In the Law of Moses, we will encounter many other commandments besides these two and these ten. And I'm saying that these two and ten function, again, as the moral core. As we continue in our study of Exodus, and as we, Lord willing, come to study Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy someday, we will find many other laws in the Law of Moses. Some of them we call civil or judicial, for they had to do with the governance of the nation of Old Covenant Israel. We will also find ceremonial laws there in the Law of Moses. These ceremonial laws had to do with the worship of God under the Old Covenant. The way of worshiping God under the Old Covenant was revealed to them by God. And neither the judicial laws nor the ceremonial laws are binding today now that Christ has come. Now that the Old Covenant has passed away and the New has has been inaugurated, it has come, it's been instituted by the blood of Christ. But the moral law upon which these civil and ceremonial laws were established, that moral law remains today. And so it is no wonder then that Christians are much more familiar with the Ten Commandments and the Two Commandments which summarize them than with the other 601 laws found within the Law of Moses. But as we encounter the Ten Commandments in the context of our study of the book of Exodus, I want for you to see that they did not only summarize the moral law for Israel, these Ten Commandments also functioned as the foundation of all of Israel's laws, both civil and ceremonial. The Ten Commandments are the first laws that God gave to Israel. And these laws, to these laws, God added judicial laws having to do with government, ceremonial laws having to do with worship. All of these laws have the Ten Commandments as their foundation Whereas their core, we're going to move rather slowly through the Ten Commandments in the weeks to come. They were so very important to Old Covenant Israel, and they are very important to the New New Covenant people of God today. And today we will only be considering the introduction to the Ten Commandments, which is found in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 20 of the book of Exodus. And I'm going to make two simple but very significant observations One, it was the Lord who was the source of the law that was given to Israel in the days of Moses. And two, Israel was obligated to obey these laws because the Lord had redeemed them. So those are the two observations that I will make today. They they are simple observations. They're very significant observations, though. So first, let us see that it was the Lord who was the source of this law that was given to Israel. In verse 1 we read, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, etc. The point is this. The law that was given to Israel in the days of Moses was from God. It was the product, not of man, but of God. 
This law was revealed by God and it was received by the people. Certainly it was not the other way around. This law was not revealed by the people and received or approved of by God. No, it was God who was the source of this law. The people received it. Now this observation might seem too obvious to be worthy of mention. But in fact, many have stumbled at this very point. In our day and age, it's not at all uncommon for men and women to think of the religion of Old Covenant Israel and of the Christian religion, the law of Moses in particular and the scriptures in general, as the product of man. Have you ever encountered this? You know, where did the Bible come from? You might ask someone. They would say, well, men wrote the Bible. End of the story, right? It's the product of man. Where did this religion come from? Old Testament religion, Old Covenant religion and new. Well, well it is the invention of man. Many will speak in this way. In fact, uh, many non-believers speak this way, uh, but also we find this opinion within the church, um, within the so-called church at least. Uh, I suppose we should not be terribly surprised to find this opinion on the streets and among the non-believing world, but sadly this opinion has even crept into the church. In fact, in, in fact many who claim to be Christians, who claim to believe uh, the Holy Scriptures, Uh, will say that the scriptures are the product of man. They deny that the scriptures have been supernaturally revealed from above and think instead that they have arisen quite naturally from below. And those who have studied the history of Protestant liberal theology and its effects upon the modern church will will know what I mean by this. Uh, This this false teaching, this, this false notion has really crept into the church and has had a very negative impact upon the church especially in the last hundred years or so. But what do we believe concerning the Scriptures? In in brief, we believe that they are the words of God. The Scriptures, though they were certainly written by men, do not originate with men, but with God. They are divinely inspired, we say. Uh, To quote Peter, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's quite clear, isn't it? 2 Peter 1.21. As Peter talks about the prophets of old and the prophecies that we have received, he says, yes, we have received these prophecies from men, but they did not originate with men. Uh, These prophecies are not the product of, of man's imagination or intellect. But these prophets of old were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They spoke from God, to use Peter's language. Or to quote Paul, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness. So how did we come to have these scriptures, these writings? The Apostle Paul says they were given by inspiration of God so that it is God who is the source of the scriptures in general. And certainly we see here in the book of Exodus that it was God who was the source of this law. As we study the scriptures we see that it has pleased the Lord at different times and in different ways to reveal Himself to man and to make His will known to His people. Think of how the Lord spoke to Adam, to Abraham, and to Moses. Think of how He revealed Himself to and through the prophets of old. Think of how He spoke to the world through Christ. The Lord has, at different times and in different ways, revealed Himself to man and has made His will known to His people. And after doing so, the record of these revelatory acts was committed to writing. 
The scriptures were written so that God's truth might be better preserved and shared, leading to the more sure establishment in comfort of the church. The scriptures are necessary, therefore, these former ways of God revealing His will to His people having ceased. And by this we mean that God does not reveal Himself as He did in the days of Adam, Abraham, and Moses. For God has spoken to the world supremely through Christ, for He was the eternal Word of God come in the flesh. He was the final Word, if you will. So God does not speak through prophets any longer. Why? Because the prophet has come, Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ does not, the Lord does not reveal Himself as He did in these, these days past, prior to the arrival of Christ, because the eternal Word of God has come in the flesh. It is finished. God has revealed Himself supremely to us through Him. What do we have now, brothers and sisters? We have the Scriptures. We have the Scriptures. And this is why we confess that the Holy Scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. The Scriptures are supremely authoritative for us. Why? Because they are the Word of God. The Scriptures are supremely authoritative for us because they are the Word of God. Did you hear it earlier when, when Pastor Phil was up here introducing the catechism question? And, and he asked, where did these Scriptures come from? And one of the little children gave the right answer saying, from God. Maybe that's not exactly how it played out. Let me think. Um, how do we know that this is what we are to believe about God? That was the question, wasn't it? And it was because God said so. That, that's the right answer. Another answer that would be correct is because the Scriptures say so. That also is correct. But why do we believe the Scriptures? Because they are from God. God is the source here. God has revealed Himself to us. God has told us what we are to believe concerning Him. He has revealed our duty before Him. In history, in different ways, and now we have record of this in the Holy Scriptures. God has spoken in history at different times and ways. He has spoken supremely through Christ, His Son, and God has inspired the writing of Holy Scripture so that we might know the truth and the implications of what God has said and done in history. Here in Exodus, we find a supreme example of this. Here in Exodus, we find a supreme example of this. Think of it. God first acted in history to redeem Israel from Egyptian bondage. He did something undeniable. All of the Hebrews saw it. All of the Egyptians saw it. The surrounding nations heard about it. They saw the effects of it as Israel sojourned in the wilderness and passed by their borders, perhaps. You see, God acted. He accomplished redemption. Here we see that God also spoke His Word to Israel. He spoke to Moses and through him, yes, but here He spoke His Word to Israel. And what did Moses do concerning these redemptive acts and God speaking to the people of Israel in due time? He wrote the Scriptures, which we now have. Exodus 20 is what we're considering today. This is a record of what God has done and what God has said the scriptures we now have are a divinely inspired record of all of that activity. Here I am simply drawing your attention to the fact that the Lord was the source of this law that was given to Israel. And I want you to notice a few things about the giving of this law. One, it was God who spoke these words to Israel directly. 
Up to this point in the narrative, God had spoken to Israel through Moses. And he will do so again later in the narrative. God will speak to Israel through Moses. But here at Sinai, the Lord spoke directly to Israel, the end result being that they begged that no further word be spoken to them. Did you catch that in the reading of the text? After they saw uh, the, the lightning and, and heard the thunder and saw the mountains smoking, and after they heard the voice of God as He uttered these ten words to them, they backed away and they trembled, saying, Moses, listen, from now on, let's just do it this way, okay? We don't want God to speak directly to us. Have him speak to you and you talk to us, lest we perish. Uh, They were filled with awe and reverential fear of the Lord in this moment. But notice this. God did first speak these ten words directly to Israel. That God spoke directly to Israel is evident from what is said in verse 1. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Who is he addressing here? He's clearly addressing Israel. Israel as a people, Israel as a nation. I brought you out of Egypt. I redeemed you from that bondage. And God spoke all these words to them, that is to Israel, uh, saying, you shall have no other gods before me, etc. It is also evident when we consider the response of Israel after the, t- after the Ten Commandments were uttered. In Exodus 20:18, we read, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled They stood afar off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses' response is significant. He said to them, Do not fear. God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood afar off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So this order of things returned. God would speak again through Moses to Israel. So they trembled with fear. They backed away. Moses says, do not fear in that sense, but God has done this so that you might fear, so that you might have a proper reverence for God. So so why did God speak these ten words to Israel directly with the sound of thunder, flashes of lightning, the sound of a trumpet, and the mountain smoking? Why did he do this? Why did he not just simply reveal these ten words to Israel through Moses That had been his way before and it will be his way again. Why did he speak to them in this way? It's already been said. It was to produce within them reverential fear. Um, That is true. But also consider this. Did it not prove that it was the Lord who was giving them this law? In this way, Israel would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the law originated with the Lord and not with the man Moses, you see. I suppose some might claim, well, Moses, you invented this law. Um, It's really from you and not from God. So is it really authoritative to us? But by God revealing the law, these ten words to Israel in this way, it proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that the law originated with the Lord. By the way, think of the miracles produced by Christ that he, he did in his ministry. Why did he do those miracles? Why did he raise the dead? Why did he heal the lame? Why did he open the eyes of the blind and unstop the ears of of the deaf? Why did he calm the stormy sea? Why did he produce bread in the wilderness for hungry people from only a few loaves and multiply the fish also? Why all of this? You know, was was Jesus just showing off? Uh, Clearly not. But these were signs that he performed. And, And signs point to some other reality. They were signs that pointed to the reality that he was indeed from above. 
that he was the eternal word of God come in the flesh. You see, um, he, he, was, he was demonstrating in a powerful way in, and through his activity that his words were true. And I think something similar is going on here. You know, we saw it in Israel's redemption from Egypt. God accomplished that redemption in a dramatic way through the sending of ten plagues, also through the parting of the Red Sea. Why that way? Except here we have a demonstration that indeed God, the Lord God of heaven, was the one working and acting in human history. He was doing it through Moses, yes, but Moses was not the source of all of this power. He was not the source of this redemption. And in a similar way here, when God first gives his law to Israel, he does it in such a way so as to demonstrate that he is the source of it and not the man Moses, you see. So why did he do it this way? To prove that he was the source, yes, to produce a reverential fear, uh, within the people of, of God. Three, I would say, he spoke in this way so that Israel would have respect for all of the laws that God would give to them, but especially these ten commandments. Many other laws would be given as God would reveal them and speak to Moses and Moses to the people. But by starting out in this way, by proving that these laws were from the Lord, it would move the people to have respect for all of the laws that, it would, that he would give uh, to them but especially these Ten Commandments. I think it is interesting how the Lord stressed the importance of these Ten Commandments. Do you see how these Ten Commandments are revealed in a special way when compared to the other uh, 603? Uh, These Ten Commandments are given a special place. Clearly, we are to view them as a kind of foundation, as a kind of core to all of the other laws. All of the other laws that were given to Israel were given to them through Moses and not directly as the Lord uttered the Ten Commandments. The source is the same. They are all from God, but the method of delivery is obviously different. Here in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments are spoken directly to Israel. Israel heard the voice of the Lord and they trembled. And when we finally come to the end of Exodus 31, we will learn that the Lord wrote these Ten Commandments on stone tablets with his own finger, if you will, and gave the tablets to Moses, and Moses was to give the tablets to the people of Israel. So we see that these Ten Commandments were uttered by God himself. Also, these Ten Commandments would be written on stone. They are clearly being given a special and privileged place amongst all of the laws that were revealed to Israel in the days of Moses. These are particularly important laws. So we have observed that it was God who spoke these words directly to Israel. Two, let us recognize that when the Lord introduced himself to Israel on Sinai, he did so as a powerful king who was initiating a covenant with his subjects. The previous sermon did emphasize this, that we are witnessing the making of a covenant here in Exodus 19 through 24. But we also see that God introduced himself to Israel on Sinai in such a way that he was demonstrating that he was a powerful king who was initiating a covenant with his subjects. I won't spend too much time on this, but it should be said that there is something going on in this episode that would have been far more obvious to the original audience than it is to us. In the ancient Near Eastern world, this is how kings would enter into covenants or treaties with other kings. The greater king, perhaps the king who had conquered the other king, um, or perhaps the more powerful king in 
an emerging alliance, would enter into a covenant or treaty with the lesser king in this way. One, he would identify the parties involved. Two, he would state the relationship between the parties. Three, he would state the stipulations of the relationship. In other words, you and I are making a covenant with one another, um, and here is the nature of our relationship. I am the greater, you are the lesser, and here are how things are going to go. Here's how things are going to go. Four, witnesses would be mentioned. Five, a commitment would be made to write the document down so that it could be referenced periodically and also read. And six, sanctions would be stated which clarify the blessings for obedience and the curses that would befall the kings and their kingdoms in the case of disobedience. This is how kings would enter into covenants or treaties with one another in that day, in that culture. And what I am saying to you is that this is what is going on in the book of Exodus here um, between God and Israel. Those familiar with the book of Exodus and also the book of Leviticus will likely recognize that all of these features that I have just now mentioned are present within the story of God entering into a covenant with Israel. And so what I am saying to you is this, God made his covenant with Israel in a way that was familiar to them and to the nations around them. The people would have known exactly what is going on here as God moved through all of these steps with them. They would have known for certain that God, the God of heaven, is right now entering into a covenant or treaty with us. Not all of the six features that I just mentioned are present in Exodus 20, but four of them are. In verse 2, we find the preamble wherein the giver and the recipients are identified. Yahweh, who is God Almighty, is the giver, and the nation of Israel is the recipient. Next, we find the prologue wherein there is a reminder of the relationship between the two parties. You know, Who are the two parties? Yahweh is the one, and the nation of Israel is the other. Well, what is the, what is the nature of the relationship between these two parties? Well, Yahweh is the great and mighty king, and he is entering into a covenant with Israel, whom he has just rescued from slavery in Egypt. After this, the stipulations are listed. They begin at 20 verse 3 and run through 23.19. They pick up again in 25.1 and continue through 31.18. When I, when I say stipulations, I'm talking about laws. So here are the parties involved. Here's the nature of our relationship. Yahweh, the great king, and Israel, his redeemed. And here's how things are going to go. If you are going to be blessed in the land that I'm giving you, here are the laws that you will obey, the laws that you will keep. Here in Exodus, we find the laws or obligations that Yahweh, the great king, set upon Israel, his redeemed. And lastly, sanctions are found in the book of Exodus. These are the blessings promised for obedience and the curses that are warned in the case of disobedience. These sanctions are found throughout the book of Exodus, but they are even found here in chapter 20. They are seen in verses 5 through 6, in verse 12, and in verse 24. I will not read all of them to you right now, but for example, would you look at verses 5 and 6? You shall not bow down to them or serve them, referring to idols. For I am the Lord your God, for I the Lord your God am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Did, did you hear it? So here you have a law forbidding idolatry, and also you have this warning regarding um, 
the, the, the consequences that will befall the people of Israel should they disobey. Uh, this remark about blessings and curses is to be interpreted as a part of the sanctions of the old Mosaic covenant. Should you decide to, to go into idolatry, to fall into idolatry and to worship other gods, this will be the result The curses of God will befall you, and they will even befall your children to the third and to the fourth generation. There are so many who have made the mistake of bringing that principle over into the new covenant. We are not in the new covenant, brothers and sisters. We are considering the making of the old covenant. This principle was true for old covenant Israel. It is not true for today. We must keep these things distinct in our mind. The point is this. When the Lord introduced Himself to Israel on Sinai in these introductory words to the Ten Commandments, He did so as a powerful king who was entering into a covenant with a nation, a nation whom He had rescued from bondage. So then, it was the Lord who was the source of this law that was given to Israel. And we have made these two observations. One, the Lord spoke directly to Israel when He revealed the Ten Commandments. Two, He has introduced Himself to Israel as a powerful king who was initiating a covenant with His subjects. Our third observation is this, the Lord introduced Himself to Israel as the Lord your God. I am the Lord, Yahweh, your God, He says. Israel had heard about the Lord from Moses. They had witnessed His great power in the outpouring of the ten plagues and in the parting of the Red Sea. They saw His glory in the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, and they enjoyed His constant provision as they wandered in the wilderness. But now the Lord spoke to them from the mountain in a most glorious and powerful way. And how did He introduce Himself to them? He said to them, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Of course, Yahweh is the God of all people, for He is the one true God, the Creator of heaven and earth, of all things seen and unseen. But here the Lord is emphasizing His special relationship to Israel and their special relationship to Him in this covenant that He was initiating The Lord had rescued Israel out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And this He did because He had determined to make them His treasured possession of all the peoples of the earth, though all the earth is His. You may see that exact language in Exodus 19.5, a passage we've just considered. The Lord God was Israel's Lord God in a special way, therefore. He redeemed them and He was making a covenant with them. And this covenant which was made in the days of Moses was the fulfillment of the promises of a previous covenant made with Father Abraham. It is no wonder then that the Lord introduced Himself to Israel, not merely as God or the Lord God, but as the Lord your God. That's how He spoke to Israel. I am the Lord your God. He is here emphasizing the special relationship that exists between Him and this people whom He had set apart from all of the nations and had rescued from bondage in Egypt. The Lord is the Lord of all the earth. But Old Covenant Israel belonged to Him and He to them in a special way. This special relationship was formalized in a covenant and established through the act of redemption. This is very common to us, actually, this idea A husband and wife have a special relationship with each other, don't they, in this world? 
And yet, how is that special relationship formalized? By way of covenant. They enter into covenant with one another on the wedding day. And so, too, we see that the Lord entered into covenant with old covenant Israel. The message for Israel was quite clear. There at Sinai, they were being brought into a special covenantal relationship with Yahweh, and they knew it. They knew that that was what was happening. You know, in Deuteronomy, the laws of this covenant are restated in preparation for the conquest of Canaan. It's 40 years later. Moses is much older at this point in time. Um, And it's interesting, uh, it's not 40 years later, is it? I think I just erred as I speak from the cuff. And it's interesting to hear how Moses uh, stated things as he looked back upon this event at Sinai, which is recorded for us in Exodus 20. Um, In Deuteronomy 5.1, we read this. Listen carefully to the way that Moses um, spoke of this event at Sinai, which happened much earlier. I'm sitting here in my mind going, how many years earlier was it? I'll figure it out eventually and get back to you on it. Um, Sometimes I confuse myself as I preach, you know. But listen to how he looks back upon uh, this event. Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. It's another name from Mount Sinai. What happened at Horeb? What happened at Mount Sinai? The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did he make this covenant. He didn't make this covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He made a different covenant with them. But with us, he made this covenant. Um, He made it with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you. He's speaking to Israel. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, etc., etc. So here we have a restatement of the ten words or the ten commandments, but there's more introduction here as Moses reminds Israel of everything they experienced at Mount Sinai those years earlier. He's reminding them, the Lord entered into a covenant with you when he spoke to you face face to face. As you saw the fire, and as you saw the glory of God on the mountain. So as I have said, the Lord was the source of this law that was given to Israel. When he gave this law to them, the Lord spoke to Israel directly. He introduced himself to Israel as a powerful king, was initiating a covenant with his subject, and he introduced him to Israel as the Lord your God. This is all about the making of a very special covenant, brothers and sisters, a covenant between Yahweh and Israel. The second and last major point of the sermon today is this. Israel was obligated to obey these laws and to keep the terms of this covenant because the Lord had redeemed them. Because the Lord had redeemed them. If a great king conquers a lesser king and mercifully offers to enter into a treaty with him, what can the lesser king do except agree to the gracious offer? If a great king offers to, um, to protect a nation or, or to free a nation from an enemy more powerful than they, they would be fools to reject the offer, provided that the terms were reasonable. And similarly, 
When the Lord rescued Israel from Egyptian slavery, Israel was obligated to obey these laws and to keep the terms of this covenant because the Lord had redeemed them. He was the redeemer. He was their rescuer. This was the nature of their relationship. The Lord was the redeemer and Israel was the redeemed. Again, listen to the preamble and the prologue. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It was said in the previous sermon, and rightly so, that the covenant that God made with Israel in the days of Moses was a covenant of works. Do you remember that from the previous sermon? Uh, There we analyzed the terms of this covenant as they were stated briefly in Exodus 19. And and we, we recognized that this was a covenant of works. The people of Israel were obligated to obey certain laws, and if they obeyed them, they would be blessed. If they disobeyed them, they would be cursed. The blessings and the curses depended upon not God, but upon the people. It was a covenant of works that was made uh, with Israel in the days of Moses. The covenant of grace is different. The blessings of the covenant of grace are not earned by us, but they are received as a gift freely given. And this is possible because Jesus Christ has kept the terms of the covenant of redemption for us. He lived in perfect obedience to God's law. He also suffered and died in the place of sinners so that through faith in Him we might have His righteousness as our own and the guilt of our sin removed because He paid the price. Substantially then, when we consider the terms of the old Mosaic covenant and the new covenant of grace, we say they could not be more different. The old Mosaic covenant was a covenant of works. The new covenant, though ratified in Christ's blood, is a covenant of grace. But in the previous sermon, I did also acknowledge that in a sense, all of the covenants that God has made with man are gracious. Did you hear this? In a sense, considered in a a certain way, we could say that all of the covenants that God has made with man are gracious. Are gracious. I do not mean that they are substantially covenants of grace, but that God was gracious and kind to make these covenants with man. I suppose this could even be said of the covenant that God made with Adam in the garden before sin even entered into the world. Though the covenant itself was most certainly a covenant of works, eternal life and glory had to be earned by Adam, um, but God was still offering to him something higher and better and greater than what he had by virtue of his creation. It is certainly true, though, that all of the redemptive covenants that God entered into with man after the fall, here I am thinking of the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, and the Davidic covenants, uh, these, these can be considered, in a sense, gracious covenants. God is here dealing with sinners, isn't he? Sinners who have rebelled against him, sinners who deserve nothing but Uh, His judgment. And what is he doing in entering into these covenants with Abraham and with Israel in the days of Moses and with David and his descendants? What is is the Lord doing except offering uh, people life eternal, the forgiveness of sins, not through these covenants themselves, but as they culminate in the new covenant, which is uh, the covenant of grace? I bring this up now to say that though the old Mosaic covenant was certainly a covenant of works when we consider the terms of it, God's grace was undoubtedly present. Do you see it? It was the Lord who graciously 
set apart Abraham and promised to make a nation of him and to bring the Messiah into the world through him. It was the Lord who graciously redeemed Israel from their bondage. Did God have to do this? Was he obligated to do so? No, he, he did it graciously. He freed them from Egyptian bondage. And even Israel, we will soon see and have already seen in the Exodus narrative, they were a sinful people. What did they do in the wilderness as they sojourned out of Egypt? But they grumbled and complained, grumbled and complained, grumbled and complained against the Lord continuously. And what did the Lord do? Did He annihilate them? Did He judge them for their wickedness? Did He snuff them out or say, never mind, I think I'll go find myself another nation to redeem? No, He showed them mercy. In fact, we will read this um, when Moses Uh, speaks with the Lord face to face later in the book of Exodus in chapter 34. Here is how the Lord uh, reveals himself to Moses in verse 6. The Lord passed before him, that is Moses, and proclaimed, listen, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is how the Lord reveals himself to Moses, as a God who is merciful, gracious, and kind. The terms of the covenant, when we consider them, it's a covenant of works, no doubt about it. Israel had to obey if they were to be blessed in the land. They had, and if they disobeyed, they would be cursed in the land. Eventually, they would be vomited out of it, sent off into exile. Eventually, this old covenant would come to an end because of the people's disobedience. They broke the covenant. It's a covenant of works. But in saying that, we are not denying that God's grace was present. God graciously redeemed Israel. God was patient with Israel. God provided for Israel a sacrificial system whereby they could uh, regain purity in the land uh, there. And in all of this, the promises of God were present concerning the coming Messiah. They were to trust in the coming Messiah and in Him have the forgiveness of sins. And all of the sacrificial worship that would take place at the tabernacle and the temple, there was a picture of the Christ to come. As they observed the Passover feast year by year, there was a picture of the Christ to come. So was God's grace present in the days of Old Covenant Israel? Certainly it was. The Lord was patient with that nation. He was merciful and kind to them. And the grace of the gospel was present not by virtue of the Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic covenants themselves, but by virtue of the new covenant which was to come. And they were entrusted with the precious and very great promises concerning that coming covenant and the finished work of the Messiah. Where is God's grace shown supremely? Where is it made available? Not through the old covenant and its terms of obedience, but through the new covenant And through the cross of Christ, where the blood of the promised Messiah was poured out. God was merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness from the days of Adam to the days of Christ, so that he might keep his promises to defeat the evil one and to atone for the sins of his elect through the blood of Christ. You can read Romans 3 to hear all about that. Was God's grace present in the days of Moses? Uh, We we must say yes, it, it certainly was. God's grace was available to Old Covenant Israel. But again, through the terms or substance of the Old Covenant, we ask, we say no. Through faith in the promised Messiah, who is the mediator of the New Covenant, which is the covenant of grace, ratified in Christ's blood. So the point, the Lord graciously redeemed Old Covenant Israel from Egyptian bondage. And they, therefore, were obligated to obey His laws and to keep His covenant out of gratitude for what 
he had done for them. So I might ask this question by way of conclusion. What does this text mean for us? What does it mean for us? As I've said before, we must be very careful when applying these passages from the book of Exodus to ourselves. For we do not live under the old covenant. We live under the new. And so we cannot simply take what what the Lord said to Israel as if he had said it to us directly. There cannot be this one-to-one sort of application of the text. It would be a grave mistake. The Lord spoke to Israel and not to us when he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He did not do that for us. He did that for them, for old covenant Israel. And when the Lord gave Israel the Ten Commandments, he gave it to them as the first and most foundational laws of that covenant of works. We should not be surprised, therefore, to find some things in the Ten Commandments that were unique to Old Covenant Israel. We've already noted that the introduction was unique to Old Covenant Israel. And in due time, we will see that there were other things that were unique to them as well. For example, Old Covenant Israel was to rest in worship one day out of seven. But what day were they to rest in worship on, according to the Ten Commandments? The seventh day. Theirs was the seventh day, Sabbath. They were to rest and worship under the old covenant on the seventh day. Whereas under the new covenant, because of the finished work of Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, we are to rest and worship one day out of seven, but on the first day of the week, which is the day that Christ rose from the grave. And what are we to make of the remarks about the children enjoying long life in the land should they obey their parents? What land? Do we have a land? We... we, We do not have a land in the same way that Old Covenant Israel had a land. Um, But does this principle still apply? Are children going to be blessed on earth if they would obey their parents? We, We say yes, there are natural blessings, even supernatural blessings that come upon children as they live in obedience to parents. I'm simply trying to illustrate to you that there were some things that were said to Old Covenant Israel, even in the Ten Commandments themselves, that were that were unique to them. And I've already mentioned what the Ten Commandments say about the sin of idolatry and how the sin or the consequences of it will be um, laid upon the children to the third and fourth generation. Uh, Yes, that happened in Old Covenant Israel. Um, The fathers would sin. They would fall into the sin of idolatry. And who would pay for it? The, The fathers, perhaps. But the consequences would roll down to future generations, because here we are considering a nation, and that's how things go in nations. Who pays the debts of the fathers in a nation? It's the children and the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren who do. And so you have heard me say that the Ten Commandments um, contain the moral law. They're there summarily comprehended. I'm not saying that the Ten Commandments are ours in the same way that they were for Israel, but the moral law is there It's there at its core. I've said that in the Ten Commandments we find God's moral law summarized, and that's certainly true. And brothers and sisters, we need to see that the moral law is still for us today. It is not given to us as a covenant of works, as it was to Israel, but it shows us the way that we should go. It also reveals our sin to us so that we might run to Christ for forgiveness. And brothers and sisters, we should care deeply 
about the Ten Commandments. We should care deeply about the moral law that is summarized for us there in them. We, as God's people today, as the new covenant Israel of God, should strive to keep the moral law. We should strive to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and to love our neighbor as ourselves. I want you to listen to our confession at this point. I think it is so beautiful and and we will move quickly towards a conclusion after this. Listen to our confession. In chapter 19, paragraph 6, here it is the law of God that is in view It says, although true believers be not under the law as a covenant of works to be thereby justified or condemned, yet it is of great use to them as well as to others, in that as a rule of life informing them of the will of God and of their duty, it directs and binds them to walk accordingly, discovering also the sinful pollutions of their natures, hearts, and lives, so as examining themselves thereby, they may come to further conviction of humiliation for and hatred against sin, together with a clearer sight of the need they have of Christ and the perfection of His obedience. It is likewise of use to the regenerate to restrain their corruptions, in that it forbids sin, and the threatening of it serves to show what even their sins deserve." and what afflictions in this life they may expect for them. Although freed from the curse and unalloyed rigor thereof, the promises of it likewise show them God's approbation of obedience, and what blessings they may expect upon the performance thereof, though not as due to them by the law, as a covenant of works, so as man's doing and refraining from evil. For the law encourageth to the one, and deterreth from the other, It is no evidence of his being under the law and not under grace. What point, in brief, is our confession making? Under this covenant of grace, the law should still matter deeply to us. Will we be saved through the keeping of God's law? No, it's impossible, for we have all violated this law in thought, in word, and in deed. We will be saved only through faith in the Messiah who obeyed this law for us, who died in our place, who rose again for us. Salvation is through faith in Him and faith in Him alone. But does that mean that God's moral law is to be thrown in the garbage can by us? Absolutely not. There are so many useful benefits to us, even still to this day. It shows us the way that we should go. It shows us our sins so that we might run to Christ anew and afresh. The Holy Spirit of God does use the law to sanctify His people continuously. To Old Covenant Israel, the Lord said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, etc., etc. But to New Covenant Israel, he says, I have delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you to the kingdom of my beloved Son, in whom you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And what does Christ say to us? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That is what Christ says to us. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He has set his love upon us. He has delivered us, not from Egypt, but from the domain of darkness. And out of gratitude, brothers and sisters, for this salvation that is ours, out of a sincere love for God and for Christ, we ought to keep the commandments of God. Let us bow for a word of prayer now. Our Father in heaven, We thank you for your holy law. Father, help us as your people who have faith in Christ.
to approach your law in the right way, not as a covenant of works, as if we could be saved by the keeping of it, uh, but, Lord, help us to come to the law in Christ Jesus, having been saved by His shed blood and under the covenant of grace. Help us to come to it so that we might use it as a light to our feet. Do use the law, O God, to convict us of sin so that you might sanctify us further. We thank you for your mercy and grace. We thank you for the work that you have begun in us, a work that you have promised to complete. Do it, O Lord, we pray, for your good and the glory of your name. And all of God's people say, Amen.